you've got your Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. take is our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's feet. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, as we often remember, you have set before us a great feast this morning, a feast of your word, and we do ask you that you give your Holy Spirit so that we might digest the food that you've prepared. Lord, let it go down deep into our soul and our spirit. Enable us, O Lord, to take in these words, to find comfort and hope in them, and also boldness and firmness. We ask that you would do this according to your kindness through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Um, 
I, I imagine most of you are pretty familiar with the name Howard Hughes, one of the wealthiest men in American history. Uh, Howard Hughes was also, uh, also the spokesperson for idolizing control. He is the spokesperson for idolizing control. There are stories about how Howard Hughes would wear tissue boxes on his feet in order to keep from coming into contact with germs. He would, if he ever came into contact with somebody who was sick, he would take off his clothes and burn them. Never wear them again. It's in this way that that he uh, would try to exercise a total control over his life seeing himself as his own preserver, as it were. Um, a pagan man looks at this and he calls it a, they, they call it a mental disorder. But biblically, it is a form of idolatry. And what's happening in Hugh's life is he idolizes control. He wants to be in control of everything that happens to him, thinking that if he can control all of these variables in his life, then he will live. So what happened to Howard Hughes? Every day of his life, he lived in perpetual fear. Abject terror. In other words, he didn't look to or trust God for his preservation. He looked to himself. Now, as faithful Christians, we are tempted to do the same thing. An illustration I've given you before is in 2009, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation came into Colonial Bank, where I was working, and announced to all the employees, the bank has failed. And in a secret bidding process, BB&T out of North Carolina has purchased the bank. So immediately, I and my co-workers went to our computers, and we had some suspicions that this was about to happen. We started looking at some of the things that had happened, and Washington Mutual had failed, and Capital One, I think it was, bought them and laid all the employees off without severance. And so there was this sense of fear that gripped all of my co-workers. And I, along with my coworkers, began refreshing our resumes, updating all our information on LinkedIn, doing everything that we could to, to make sure that we could move from this job to the next with, in a seamless way. And, and I, I, was, I was fearful. How, you start asking questions. How am I going to provide for my family? Uh, what, what's going to happen to me? Uh, you know, let's get another tank of gas in the car just in case it's the last one and that's where you have to sleep for a while and after about four or five days of this sadly it took that long I became deeply convicted that I was responding to this threat just like all of my non-believing friends were there was no difference looking at my life where did you see trust in the Lord where in that moment did, could I have said, did my friends look at me and say, why aren't you afraid like everybody else? And I say, well, I'm, I mean, I know the Lord's going to provide for me. And, and listen, this is not to say that updating your resume and 
making sure your information on LinkedIn is updated or uh, filling out applications. None of that was sinful, do you understand? What was sinful is that my heart in that moment showed that I was trusting more in my own power than I was trusting in the Lord. What I should have done. You see, and this is what happens when we trust in the Lord. Is first, first, my heart's not filled with fear. I fear Him. My first thought is, okay, Lord, how can I obey you in this situation? How can I stick to your commandments, rest in your wisdom? How can I do all of that and fill out my applications and update LinkedIn? You see, there's the difference. It's not that that you don't do anything, but the reference point becomes totally different. You're sitting here saying, well, how in the world does this apply at all to the sign of Emmanuel, God with us? Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, God gives this sign of Emmanuel to signify, and there there are many things, but I'm going to boil it down to three. One, it signifies God's divine power. The sign of Emmanuel signifies God's divine power. It also signifies the Redeemer's sinless purity, and thirdly, the fulfillment of God's covenant. And all of this is given to the people of God so that you look to the sign of Emmanuel and you grow in your confidence toward the Lord. And you walk faithfully. Isaiah 7 opens, and God's people are on the cusp of devastation. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had been called to go to the people of Israel to be a prophet to Jerusalem and to Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's he's given this great call. You're going to preach and nobody's going to listen to you. Um, Enjoy. And his first calling, his first prophecy, his first word from the Lord is in Isaiah chapter 7. And he goes to this king by the name of Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was a bad dude. He he didn't walk with the Lord, in other words. If you'd have looked at the life of Ahaz and the life of Rezin, who was the king of Syria, you'd have said, they're basically the same person. what, what What we're saying is that Ahaz, he didn't walk with the Lord. He had no regard for God. According to 2 Kings 16, In 2 Chronicles 28, he burned his sons in fire. He offered them as an offering. He built a pagan altar and made modifications to God's temple, some at the command of the king of Syria. And in 2 Chronicles 28, it adds that Ahaz made metal images for the Baals, and offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. You see, all of this demonstrates Ahaz is a wicked king. And what he's doing is in his role of leadership, instead of delivering the law of God to God's people and demonstrating to them how to walk faithfully with the Lord, he's teaching them how to worship the gods of pagan nations. He's a bad dude. And now, in Isaiah chapter 7, he finds himself on the cusp of war. 
He finds himself on the cusp of war. Uh, notice as we read in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, uh, Isaiah 7, 1, In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack. And so here's the picture. The, the, the story opens, and there we see this battlefield. The king, these two kings have come together. Just to give you some perspective on the power of their armies, when they did fight against Judah, in one day they killed 120,000 men. And the book of Kings tells us that they didn't just kill these piddly men that they were going into the house of Jerusalem. You got anybody who can fight? Bring him out. Give him a shield. Give him a sword. No, that they killed the men of valor. 120,000 of them. And so Ahaz, on the steps of Jerusalem and Judah, he sees this vast army. And notice what happens in verse 2. When the house of David was told, that's an important phrase, the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You can kind of see them in their houses. What are we going to do? They're terrified. What does God command Ahaz to do? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Lord tells Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's pool. What is, what is Ahaz doing? Well, Ahaz is trying to make sure that the water supply to the city isn't cut off. You remember, this is how Rome fell. Is their water supply was totally destroyed, and so the people were starving for water, and they were conquered. So Ahaz, he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go out and I'm going to make sure that the water supply is secure. And that's where God says, go out to him right there, Isaiah, and you tell him what to do. And here's what you tell him to do. Be careful. Be still. Trust in the Lord. I'm going to deliver you. In verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. These are just men, he says in verse 8. Resin. He's just a man. Ephraim's going to be shattered from being a people. Head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. These are men, just like you are, Ahaz. This is not the infinite, eternal God, the one who has all power in and of himself. These are men. Trust me. And then we come to it in verse 10. In the abundance of his kindness, the Lord is going to assure Ahaz of this victory. At the end of, there in verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, he's calling him. He says, trust me. Trust me. 
And to assure this, he's going to put a seal on this promise. And he says, Ahaz, ask me for a seal. Ask me for a sign. Something to assure you to shore up your heart, as it were, so that you won't be afraid of Rezin and Remaliah. Ask me for something. And Ahaz is so pagan. He's a polytheist. He says, no. Not going to do it. And then he tries to sanctify it a little bit by saying, I'm not going to test the Lord. In response, Jehovah says, well, I'm going to give one anyway. And in verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. God gives him the sign and the people of God and especially the house of David, the sign of Emmanuel. And again, it signifies three things. God's divine power, the Redeemer's sinless purity, and the fulfillment of God's covenant. First of all, we see it as the sign of Emmanuel signifying God's divine power. Notice what God says, the, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. In other words, God is going to provide something for you under seemingly impossible circumstances. What is God reminding us of in this promise? That the fulfillment of His promises depend upon Him alone. Remember Abraham? When Abraham was promised that he would have a son and and, in... Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God came to him and he said, I am Yahweh Adonai. I am the God Almighty, the one who can do all of my purposes. And in verses 15 to 17, he's he's telling Abraham, you're you're 99 years old, you're going to have a son. And Abraham and Sarah laughed in the tent. Giving Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age shows that nothing is impossible for God. He can do whatsoever He wills. And so one of the first applications that we make of this is that God's signs first and foremost point God's people to His power. Why do it through a virgin? In other words... Well, there are a couple of reasons, but first of all, because God is doing it by His own power. He's not shaking hands with man and saying, well, if you agree with me, and if we can work together, then we can bring this to pass. That's not what He does. God does it in and of His own power. And so when we think about all the signs that God gives from circumcision that He gave to Abraham, all of these signs point us back to remember that He can do whatsoever He wills. Every day, Abraham, when he went to the bathroom, would look down, and there he sees the sign of his promise. Every day, multiple times of a day, God will uh, perform his promise for you. When we baptize a new believer, or we baptize our children, it's not primarily a sign of our faith, do you see? It's a sign of the promise of God that what He says He will do, He can do. 
And here's something to consider. That God produces these feats in the sight of men and of angels. And do you see, every time it seems like man is on the cusp of extinction, every time it seems like the evil one is about to prevail over the people of God, God snatches him out. Men and angels observe the sovereign power of God to deliver His people and perform His promises. So first of all, this sign of Emmanuel signifies God's divine power. You think about Israel on the banks of the Red Sea. Remember what happened there? Turn over with me to Exodus chapter 14. Israel, at this moment, had been, they'd come out of Egypt. They had plundered the Egyptian people. They came out with a great spoil. They're following Moses, who's following the pillar of cloud and of fire through the wilderness, and they come to the banks of the Red Sea. And then suddenly from behind, they see probably a cloud of dust rising on the horizon. And they realized that Pharaoh is pursuing them with his armies. In fact, he had taken 600 of his men and on chariots they were pursuing Israel as hard as they could. And so in front of Israel, you've got the Red Sea. And behind them, you've got the army of Pharaoh coming after them to conduct a complete slaughter. And notice in verse 10 how the people respond when Pharaoh drew near. This is Exodus 14.10. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, just like Ahaz. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Can't you imagine this scene? Just for a moment. The devil and all of the demons that had been worshipped by the Egyptian people observing this scene on the banks of the, of the Red Sea and all of a sudden the, the devil's fangs dripping with saliva thinking, God set it up for me. All I have to do is spike the volleyball. I'm going to wipe out his people in one fell swoop. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today shall, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. When God caused that young girl, Mary, who'd never known a man, to bring forth Emmanuel, the first thing that we should think of is the power of God to deliver on His promise. The second thing 
is that it signifies the Redeemer's sinless purity. The Redeemer's sinless purity. Why why did this God-man have to come forth from a virgin? Well, for this reason. That every man who descends from Adam has two problems. One, Adam's guilt is imputed to his account. And two, he's corrupted by Adam's nature. The moment of your conception, Adam's guilt is credited to your account. Before you take a breath, before you lift a finger, before you think a thought, you are guilty of Adam's sin. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And not only do we have that against us, but Adam's nature corrupts you. According to Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image. And what's the result of that in Genesis 5? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. We are guilty and corrupt. Yet God promises a man whose father isn't Adam. God promises a man whose father isn't Adam. Therefore, Adam's guilt is not imputed to him, is not credited to his account, and he doesn't inherit the corruption that Adam had. You know, even the best of men will be a disappointment. As you survey, just survey biblical history And think about some of the men that are portrayed as great men. Think of the greatest king in Israel's history would have been David. And yet, what do we find in his life but failure? If you look close enough at every single man, you will find reason to doubt and say, this is not the guy. How can we put confidence in this one? You think of electing a president and there's a a great man who's great integrity and moral and everybody says, well, he's not electable. Nobody's going to vote for that guy. We, We can't support him. Every man has a deficiency. Every man is beset by sin. Even the best man will disappoint you. And this is because men born of men descending from Adam are guilty of Adam's sin and inherit his corruption. Every single one. But Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. You understand? The one who sits in your flesh right now at the right hand of God the Father, whose glory shines day by day, who's conquering His kingdom and expanding His kingdom on the earth, That is the only one who will never, ever disappoint you. That is the only one who makes promises to His people and brings those promises to pass absolutely. He's a king who doesn't disappoint. You're never going to read of Him 
that he sinned with Bathsheba, that he was overtaken by some lust in his heart. You're never going to find about Christ that he, he cooked the books, that he was embezzling money from the kingdom of God. He is the perfect law keeper. And therefore, God calls upon you to put your absolute faith and trust in Him. Thirdly, the sign of Emmanuel signifies God's fulfillment of His covenant. What will the virgin bear? She will bear a son. Why is this significant for the Christian? For the people of God? Well, because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you'll turn over there, we find that God promised a son. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse twelve. God is speaking to David here when he was king in Jerusalem. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. God promises that David's kingdom will last forever. Now think about that. Forever. David's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It cannot be blotted out. In order for God's promise to stand, a son of David has to sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever and forever and forever and forever. It cannot skip a beat. And in verse 16 of 2 Samuel, God doubles down on this promise. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now think about this. Come back with me to the context of Isaiah chapter 7. Who's our king? Ahaz. What's he doing to his children? He's burning them. Specifically his sons. And what is the threat that Rezin and Remaliah bring against the nation of Judah in Isaiah chapter 7. What's the threat? They're going to set up another king. Tabael. They will probably dismember Ahaz and replace him. Now think, from the devil's perspective, what have you accomplished I have a wicked king who's wiping out his own sons, and now I have Rezin and Remaliah coming against Jerusalem to replace the king. This is fail-proof. I'm going to wipe out the promise. 
forever and forever. Double pincers coming upon the promise. All I have to do is snuff it out. And not only that, but the man in charge, Ahaz, is sitting in his house looking at his enemies like this. Certain defeat. The devil wins. But what do you know about God's covenants? They cannot fail. And if you were Ahaz in that moment, and you were a righteous man, and you looked out your window, and you saw these enemies of Israel, of Jerusalem, on your doorstep, you would not have shook for fear of man. Your heart would have been filled with the confidence of God. Ahaz should have remembered. God promised His plan cannot fail. I might die, but I know that the throne of God is certain forever. But Ahaz wasn't a godly man. And therefore he trembled. You and I know that God fulfilled this promise. For we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 to 33, these very words. Forgive me, Luke 1. And the angel said to her, notice the repetition, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. From the jaws of defeat, do you see? God snatches victory. This is also demonstrated in the name of the Son. His the son's name shall be called Emmanuel. In other words, one who comes from the house of David, who's born of a virgin, will be called Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. You, you probably know that. It means God with us. But what you also know is, is that name, that title, represents the core of God's covenant promise with His people. So in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, we read, I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the preface to the Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 22, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And in Deuteronomy 6, the faithful profession was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And, and what's reflected in that is not just that, yes, God is, God is watching out for us. Yes, that's true. God is providing for us. That's true. God has distinguished us from all the nations of the earth who serve the demons. We serve the true God. 
Yes, that's true. But what that shows is that this people and this people alone are reconciled to God. He loves them. He cares for them. So much so that He will walk in their midst. Demonstrating that in a tabernacle. That He goes before you. He leads you. And He loves you. And you are special to Him. Therefore, He is your God. And this aspect then of the promise signifies reconciliation to God through God's redemptive act. This is, this is the Gospel. It's always been the Gospel. These telescoping promises of God to His people leading them finally and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's names signify His character. You might call him Jehovah Rapha or Adonai. And they're not just titles by which to call him. They reveal to you his character. And do you know Joseph's contribution to the nativity story? We find it in Matthew chapter 1. Here's Joseph's contribution, just like, by the way, it was Zechariah's contribution to his son John. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, and you, Joseph, will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the one who reconciles God's, God to God's people, thus enabling the promise of Emmanuel. The sign of Emmanuel that Ahaz rejected signifies God's divine power, the Redeemer's sinless purity, and fulfillment of God's covenant. For you, God's covenant serves as a foundation. Christ serves as a foundation for you. When you think about Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing. We are remembering God's divine power, our Redeemer's sinless purity, and the fulfillment of God's covenant. When you meditate on the birth of Christ, remember His birth signifies that God will fulfill His promises both to uh, men and to angels. God is showing His great power. This, You see, this should have comforted Ahaz and the house of David. Why didn't it? Well, because he was a godless man. He was filled with fear rather than faith. His fear demonstrated what? That he believed, he ultimately believed that the promise of God could fail. The incarnation of Christ 
ought to remind you not to be afraid. When the bank fails, when your nation is beset by a plague or a famine, or there's war, or there's the red dawn and the Russians are coming on shore, don't be afraid. Or when your community seems to be beset by crime, don't be afraid. What if you saw all the enemies of Christ in this world as Isaiah referred to them in verse 4? They are nothing but burnt ends. Smoking firebrands. Because Ahaz did not see by faith, instead of turning to Jehovah, you know what he did? He turned to Assyria. Please come help me. And he plundered the temple and he gave the Assyrian king all of their wealth so that the Assyrian king would be his deliverer. The incarnation of Christ, the promise of God with us, reminds us to set our hope on God alone and wait on Him. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do thank You that You are a strong deliverer to Your people. You bring us to moments, O oh Lord, when our profession of the truth that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that profession is put to the test. And you test us. You show us the weakness or the strength of our faith, but you also demonstrate to all the devil's children who wage war against you that your purposes will never fail. Lord our God, give us strength. Enable us not to be like wicked King Ahaz who trusted only in himself, but help us as we think about the incarnation of our precious Lord to remember that you do all your holy will. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.